I would like to look a little bit at uh, two different things uh, which follows each other a little bit. So one is looking in a way more in depth at why the questioning. That in a way to kind of uh, be careful that the questioning is not an end in itself. The more I question, I question more. And then I have this mega question and that's the end of it. But to see that yes, uh, through the questioning, one could have certain breakthroughs, certain meditative experiences, which I will talk uh, later about. But personally, I would say to see one of the points, I would say of any practice, but the practice of questioning also, the practice of listening also, is that we have a tendency toward mis certain misperception. And because of this misperception, actually we relate to ourselves, we relate to others in a bit of a fixed way. You could nearly say in a little bit of a selfish, disregarding way. So th that if you do the questioning, it's not just a fact that you are questioning what is this, or you are saying, I don't know. But it's more the effect this will have on your perception. You know, this is what is really important in terms of the looking deeply, in terms of the experiential inquiry, in terms of the questioning, is the fact that this is going to help us change misperception. And misperception, I would suggest, actually stop what I would call creative, wise compassion. So in a way, the point of the practice is that by anchoring, by questioning, especially questioning, we start to dissolve our fixity. And if we start to dissolve fixity, what do we notice? I mean, the first thing we notice, and I presume this is our four full day of the retreat, and I presume you might have noticed change, haven't you? You might have noticed your state of mind changing. You might have noticed sensation changing. You might have noticed emotion changing. You might have noticed all kinds of different things changing, or maybe seeing something you had not seen before. And to me, this is actually, the questioning is not an end in itself, but that by really discovering experiencing for ourselves change, then it changes our relationship to experience, but especially our relationship to others. And in, and in kind of what takes us a little also, because Stephen is very keen with the mystery and the wonderment, and it's very nice, I agree. <laughs> 
But to me, apart from the poetic of it, what is interesting is when we meet someone, are we meeting the person as a come to be in that moment? Are we meeting the presentness of the person? Or are we meeting the person with the history we have of them? Or the idea we have of them? Or how we met them and how they were three months ago? I mean, this is something that I'm really kind of, uh, I see again and again with my mother was a kind of a type of uh, Alzheimer, one could say. And so at time I think, this is it, she's really going down, she's really losing it. And then two days later, she is okay again. I mean, one of the things she does, which is little, <laughs> is that, you know, you sleep toward midnight, Suddenly you hear some noise <laughs> and she lives downstairs, I am upstairs and suddenly I get up and she's there and she's hallucinating. She takes her dream for reality and then she's there and then, you know, you kind of wake up and you're, okay, you have to convince her that it's, a, it's not real and she said, where are the little one? Where are the little one? And I have to convince her that, yeah, 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 it's everything okay, let's go down, let's go back to sleep. And then you kind of come back and you're like, hmm, is she going to do this every day, every night? But she does not. She just do it time to time, according to various conditions. So how am I going to meet her? Ah, she's going to wake me up every night? Or am I going to meet her? Let's see when it happens again. To see this is a little my mantra. Let's see what happened. It's a bit my I don't know is let's see what happened. We don't know. She could do it again or not. And generally she does not. And a few months pass. And you think, ah, that's it. She doesn't do it anymore. <laughs> and then puff, <laughs> she does it again. So what is interesting when we talk of being aware of change, it doesn't mean everything changes every minute, every second. I mean, there is a certain continuity. And at the same time, within a relative continuity, you have change. But then, what you can discover over time, experience for yourself, is that actually change has two aspects. One you could say is ultimate change. When death, I don't know if Stephen has talked to you about this, one of his favorite subjects too, but you'll see if you get it or not. And ultimate change is that. And our teacher had this wonderful, because uh, for him, awakening practice was urgent. So he always kind of tried to make us, you know, this is urgent, you know, you have to practice, no time to spare. And then he would say, look, your life rests upon a single breath. 
Don't waste any breath. Go on. So that can, yes, of course, help you to practice a little more diligently. But on another side, it could help you to have more compassion. Because often we take people for granted. Oh, there is a little problem, but who cares? Or I said a little something unfriendly. Oh, who cares, you know? But no. Can we, can we see each person we meet? Can we also consider ourselves? That our life, their life, rests upon a single breath. And I think if we see people in that way, I think it changed our relationship. To me, this is what changed my relationship to my mother. When I used to be many years ago with my mother, it was like I would see her, but I would see the person to whom I had this huge history and ideas and things of that nature. And then it changed. When I saw her as this human being, of course I have a history with this human being, but right now I'm not meeting the history. I am meeting this human being this human being whose life rests upon a single breath. And then you relate to that person now instead of all kinds of other things which could interfere. And then really come what I call this creative, wise compassion. How can I be with this human being right now? How can I bring compassion to being with this human being? Another aspect of change because often when Buddhists talk about impermanence, it's all doom and laden and death. But one thing about death is that you are not dead yet. This is a very important one. Of course, ultimately we all get there. But until we get there, we're not dead yet. Which means possibly we don't need to worry about it and try to really live our life, each breath, to the fullest. And the other aspect of change is that fixed things change. And to me, this is a gift of change. This is, in a way, the gift we can give to ourselves, the gift we can give to others. So, the fact that there is a potential for change. And this is what I think the Buddha found when in those times, in that culture, things, you know, people were born and they were born in a certain caste. And in a way, that was it. Their life was according to their caste. And the Buddha said, no, people who come, regardless of the caste, regardless of where they're born, because what matters is what they do. What matters is their intention, not in which family, in which caste, in which they're born. What matters is in a way the potential, the capacities they're born with, and which can be developed. So what basically he was saying is that all of us have the potential for growth, the potential to change. 
And to me, this is again a compassionate move to actually when you meet somebody or you meet yourself and you feel stuck. And then you have this impression they're never going to change. Oh, I am never going to change. But generally, we do. I mean, we can be stuck. We can repeat certain things time to time. But we are not always stuck. And so, of course, you can have some time more rapid change. And sometimes you can have extremely slow change. But that doesn't mean change is not happening or that change is not a possibility. So to me, becoming really through the questioning, becoming aware of that potential for change and seeing it, the possibility in ourselves, seeing the possibility in others, I would say is a compassionate move. And the other thing questioning can help us with, as I mentioned a little bit already, is conditionality. This, to me, is actually the practice. That's what it's about. I think we have to be very careful not to think that the practice is about going above condition. Because, of course, that's what we would like that finally we really, really above condition, that I will reach such a level of equanimity that nothing, nothing will bother me. <laughs> so here I'm going to be on my little fluffy clouds. And I'm looking, boom, 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 little cloud, and oh, you're down there, too bad, too bad. I am on my little <laughs> fluffy cloud. Yeah, 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 yeah. I am okay. Nothing is going to bother me. Like it bothers you, but never mind. But that's really not the idea. Because what the Buddha saw so clearly, that nothing is predestined. I mean, we might have tendency and conditions, but he kind of really saw how, in a way, you had inner conditions meeting outer conditions. And so, in a way, the practice is really to discover conditions. And in a way, what are the conditions that might help us to move, to evoke, to develop more wisdom, more compassion? What conditions? are a little block to it. Because in a way, I would say most of us, in general, are fairly kind, fairly friendly, compassionate people. So then the question is, when we are not, because it seems that sometimes we are not, what happens? And then, instead of saying, I am the most compassionate person in the world. And then some people might say, well, not all the time, to the same degree, to everybody. To look, what is it? What are the obstacles to compassion? And that's why, in a way, when we question, 
part of it is to become more clear about what's going on. What are the different conditions that comes into play? And then we can see, hmm, with this condition, then my heart opened. And I really turn toward, with compassion toward others. And other condition is like, we kind of close off. And then we can look. What are the conditions for us, which will be like an obstacle, like a blockage? And I would say one of the major conditions nowadays is busyness. You are busy doing this, doing that, and you get into this tunnel vision. And you I have to do this, I have to do that. And you have somebody say, oh, poor me, poor me, help me. Ah, I don't have the time. I don't. Maybe in two days, at four o'clock, five minutes, possibly, but you know, we'll see, we'll see. I have to do this. This is interesting, actually, to see how a busy mind will actually really cut, off, cut us off from others for responding to others and also ignoring ourselves. A few years ago, I was reading about a fellow who was working in finance in New York and just working, 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 working and getting lots of money, lots of money. And until one day, he dropped, not dead, but he fainted by his door because of overwork. And he thought, hmm, is it worth it to be so busy that I'm so disconnected from myself, from everybody else, and I just kind of faint out of exhaustion? And then he totally changed his life because he could see that actually overworking, being so busy, actually did not help himself or others. And also to see what are the limits of our compassion. Because in a way, if you look at compassion, it's kind of like a spectrum. On one side, we can have what everybody consider like real compassion, what I would call heroic compassion. And you really go beyond everything to help somebody. But generally, this is not sustainable. You can do it for a few hours, a few days, possibly a few weeks, but after a while, what's going to stop the compassion is energy. If we don't have enough energy, we can feel compassionate. We might not do very much about it. We can't. So this is a yes, sometimes we can be in heroic compassion, but not all the time. And then sometimes, actually, we have to just be compassionate to ourselves. And that's what, because we are ill, because we are weak, because we, are, uh, we have difficulty, so then we have to think more of ourselves. And then sometimes we are more in the middle. So really, to me, the questioning is really helping us to be more aware of this multi-perspectival experience and see the different aspect of it and then see how it comes into play and how it can help with having more wise compassion. And sometimes it can shut down the compassion.
And then the other thing I wanted to talk a little about was because we are kind of, you know, the fourth day of the retreat. And so this is like a retreat where we're really practicing. And I know it's not uh, uh, necessarily, I mean, from a Korean point of view, this is really a kind of like a light schedule. <laughs> but I'm aware that for you, it's a serious schedule. But of course, if you do go in car retreat, this is really a light schedule. But, you know, for the people who do this retreat, it could be, what I would say, a serious schedule. Because we sit, we walk, we sit, we walk. And so it's kind of require a lot of energy and lots of sincerity, lots of effort. And then as we practice, actually, what's the point of this practice? The fact that we sit and at one level, I mean, in Korea, they have this term, the long enduring mind. That actually, when you come to a retreat like this, there need to be this long enduring mind. And it's true, at one level, uh, some people might, you see like nowadays, you see meditation everywhere. And I notice they even improving posture. Because before, 20 years ago, you also saw meditation posture everywhere, but they were all sitting like that. You know, so you really saw that they really did not meditate. They had really bad postures. And now they're sitting like, kind of like, you know, full lotus, like amazing, if you want, you know. At least they've done yoga, if not meditation. So in a way, you have meditation everywhere. And so this meditation, I mean, it seems attractive. I mean, they all look very attractive on the kind of the newspaper. They look amazing, you know, like they go into float of the cushion. And, uh, but I mean, we sit here. And possibly we don't have that kind of like feeling fantastic all the time <laughs> on our cushion, you know. We might be a little agitated. I'll talk more about it tomorrow, but a little agitated or a little pain or this or that and other. But in a way, that's why the retreat is about. If we stick at it, if we continue with it, generally at some point, we can experience certain meditative state. So I would not say that's the only reason to practice, to experience these meditative states. But time to time, we do. And so what we have to be careful there is to think that this is it. Like, you know, you might, there is different state. I'll talk about them. But if we experience a meditative state, it's generally very nice. You see them, mm, oh, so tasty. Mm, nice, nice, nice. You know, so either it's the first time and you think fantastic, either you are used to it and you think, ah, that's nice. Mm, yes, very nice. And the thing we have to be careful is to think the aim is to experience this all the time on the cushion. And very likely it's more time to time. And so to see that actually when we practice in meditation, there is, I would say, two effects of the meditation. One, the grasping, which I'll talk more about on the last evening, and one which is really 
meditative experience. And so here you can have different things. One of the things we sometimes experience is that we sit in meditation and suddenly it's like our heart open. And the way I could describe it is that we have no trouble with nobody whatsoever. Because generally we sit there, yes, yes, I love everybody, but not this one, this one, no, 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 I can't, that one, I can't. I'm uh, we teaching meditation for a scientific study to seniors who have never meditated for 18 months in Normandy, in France. And so we kind of, you know, toward the end of the 18 months, we bring compassion, loving kindness, and then we bring the difficult person. And they're like, no way. <laughs> I mean, the other, okay, but no way. And it's kind of really interesting how they really, it's really hard to kind of say, yeah, I kind of also have compassion for people who are difficult or things like that. And so it's quite amazing when you sit in meditation and really you feel, wow, in a way I have no trouble with nobody. I'm really open to everybody. I can bring friendliness to everybody. And so this is a wonderful experience. But then it passes, and then you go back home, and the neighbor, and the chimes of the neighbor. Ooh. So this is what is interesting when you have a meditative experience, because you really experience yourself as this all-loving person. But it's an experience, so it's just momentary. And then like all things, it passes. Meditative experiences also are impermanent. And so after that, it's more like when we go back home, it's more like a memory. Oh yeah, that's a possibility. But I might not feel like this all the time. But at time, I could look at people that way. Or, you might have more what I call uh, a mystical experience. And so that generally uh, you sit there and then suddenly, or you can also experience this walking, you suddenly have this kind of like everything uh, shines, everything is bright. And you kind of feel really kind of like uh, not separate from everything and not kind of amazing like light. And then you think, wow, everybody has a Buddha nature. This is amazing. And it can be quite exhilarating. Wow. And it's nice to feel you experiencing your potential and to see that everybody has the same potential. But like all things, it passes. <laughs> but it's interesting to experience ourselves differently. To me, this is kind of like the meditative experience. I see them as a byproduct of meditation, which enables us to feel a little differently. And to see that, oh yeah, I can feel different. 
I remember many years ago, I was teaching a weekend, and then suddenly uh, a young man come in interview, and he says to me, it's fantastic, I am not my thought. They just come up, I am not them, I am free, this is wonderful. It must be like that forever. I thought, that I'm not sure about. <laughs> but to have that experience, I feel, oh, I am not my thought. I have thought, thought appear, but I am not necessarily need to identify with my thought. And then from that, then the questioning can be really useful. And you can ask yourself, the thought, is it true? Is it always true? Because that's interesting, because it's in my mind. I have the feeling it's true, but not necessarily. So bringing the question, seeing that in that moment. Or we can have what you could say possibly an experience of emptiness. So again, we have to be careful with this experience of emptiness. Sometimes it's a feeling that the body is empty. But the body being empty doesn't mean that the body disappears. I mean, once, uh, many years ago, when I was in Korea, there was this monk who, who practiced really, really hard in an hermitage, and suddenly he experienced emptiness. My body is empty. Everything is empty. So he rushed down to the master cousin and said to master cousin, everything is empty. I am empty. And then master cousin took his big stick and then hit him. <laughs> and the guy said, I, you see, it's not empty. <laughs> but he did not believe him because his experience was so strong. Everything is empty. My body is empty. So he went to two more masters who did exactly the same thing. <laughs> so he went back to practice more. So the fact that something feels empty, this, I think, is a thing. When you have an experience of emptiness, it's not that everything is empty, but f it means that things feel empty. So, for example, it might mean that you experience your body differently. I mean, generally, we experience our body as very uh, tangible, very kind of fixed and solid, also very separate from everything else. But to me, what is fascinating about anchoring in the breath is to ask yourself, what is this air I breathe? Basically, I'm breathing your air, and you're breathing mine. So my air going to your lung, your air going to my lung. And this is why generally at the end of the talk, and if you walk in, it gets a little stale. And to me, this is wonderful. Now, generally, we think, hmm, this about this, this is mine. It's nice, you know, clear. Uh, over there, I don't know what yours is like, but mine is a good one. <laughs> yours, mm, don't know about it. 
But actually, we can see that actually we're breathing the same air all the time, and thankfully with the trees and everything else. But then if we look, we're breathing. You know that if you put paint on your body, you, you stop breathing. Because a lot, big part of breathing comes from the pores of the body. Imagine all the air coming in and out of your skin. And generally we have such a feeling that my skin is like a kind of a plastic sheet when actually it's just, it's like more like a sponge. And so we're breathing in, breathing out. So of course, our body is not fixed and solid. At one level it is. And at another level, it's kind of like breathing in, breathing out. So constantly, life coming to me. I go inside, outside of life. So of course, if we really question we're going to experience our body a little differently. As more this connectivity, the fact that we connect it with everything that is alive. Sometimes the experience can be more like an insight. And this is, in a way, uh, I would say, the little difficulty of translating uh, before mindfulness uh, became really like a fashionable word. Before, we used to talk more about vipassana, and generally vipassana was translated as insight. And then everybody was doing insight meditation. And if you're doing insight meditation, you're supposed to have insight. So generally, at the end of a retreat, it was like, you know, did you have insight, you know? Oh, yes, I had a big, big one. Me, mm, pap, mm, not really, you know. Mm. And so it was kind of all about, you know, the insight everybody needed to have because you were doing insight meditation. But basically, Vipassana just means exploring, questioning, experiential inquiry, which, of course, can help us to have insight, of course. What does it mean, insight? Means that we see something more clearly. We understand something more clearly. What is in um, the Sun tradition, you have the great master, which was already mentioned by Stephen, uh, the pat sixth patriarch, Hui Neng. And Hui Neng has this wonderful quote where he says, often there is this term in Son, no mind. And the Master said, no mind is to know all things without grasping at anything. So no mind doesn't mean that you have no thought, doesn't mean that you have no brain, but no mind means that, in a way, you know everything without grasping at anything. So in a way, often, again, our perception is a little limited by different things. And then as we practice, then we refine that clarity. And certainly, you might see something 
But that knowing, that seeing, is actually not just an intellectual knowing, it's a really an experience. You really know it for yourself. And personally, I think all these meditative experiences are actually more like de-grasping, moments of de-grasping. And so here, suddenly you see something clearly. And it can be on the cushion or it can be at any other time. I remember many years ago when I used to live in England, in Devon, and my job uh, was to be house cleaner. Uh, that's the way I earned my money. And we also used to do a retreat with the community. So I was on a retreat with the community, but I also had to do my little house cleaning job. So did a bit of meditation, then went to my house cleaning job, and then I went into the bathroom. And I had generally a little trepidation. Because I always wondered, you know, when you lift the thing, what's going to be <laughs> in there? So that day, I lift the thing. And there is a big one. <laughs> and I'm like... And suddenly, I see its emptiness. This is just a form. Nothing, no less. I mean, I still had to flush it. But, but it was so clear. There was no aversion. There was nothing of that nature. Oh, just a form. Come upon condition. Disappear upon other conditions. But then, you have that seeing. You have that insight. And it's so clear. And then it goes. But then, in daily life, I am still confronted with things of that nature. You know, sometimes, I mean, uh, in France, sometimes there is a dead rat which appears because of the cats or various animals. And you kind of like, do you see it as a form? Or are you like, ah! And I, I find that interesting. So you cannot see it the same way, but it can inform you in some way. And I think that's what's happening with these experiences. You cannot reproduce experiences. This I think we have to be, I mean, they can happen again, of course. But you cannot reproduce, I would say, the same one, because once you know something, you know it. And there is also another type of, which I mean, this one is a little more regular. And this is what I would call a calm and clear state that sometimes we sit in meditation and suddenly it's calm and clear. I'll talk more about this tomorrow. And so you really sit there and it's so calm and clear and immediately you think, great, this is it. I must go deeper. And then generally it goes. And so with that state, actually you can practice it in terms that when it happens, try to stay with it like you would be holding a child. If you hold a child or a pressure, a child, let's take a child if, or an animal, if it can be held. <laughs> I have a cat. I have a cat. It's impossible to hold him in any way. So I was thinking of that one. So let's say a child or a cat, which is 
hold the ball. <laughs> and if you hold it too loose, poof, it falls. If you hold it too tight, it's going to cry or scratch or whatever. And it's the same with the state of quietness and clarity, that if you hold it too tight, it goes. If you're too loose, it goes too. And then that becomes part of the practice, that suddenly if you find yourself quiet and clear, don't do anything. Just be with it. And this is interesting because if you are just with it, it just continues by itself. And you just need to be with it. And of course, at some point, that's what is interesting when it goes. It goes generally either because of the clapper goes clack, or it goes because the energy has gone. So you kind of feel, oops, the en energy has gone. And then it's passed. And then at another point, it might come again. So I'd just like to, to finish with um, first two two poems from my one of my favorite nuns. Uh, when I was in Korea as a nun, I met this wonderful nun who, uh, who kind of was really tiny. She was very tiny. And she had like an, at one level a sad and beautiful story that she, she had a terrible childhood and then she decided to become a nun because she thought that's the only way I can survive. And then nobody would take her as a nun because in those days they had very little uh, means and then she was very little and scrawny and they thought, you know, she could not be much help. And then finally she was accepted and after having difficulty, uh, she managed to finally practice and then she really went for it. Once she could, you know, practice and practice meditation. She really, really went for it. And so she had amazing experiences. She really had all kinds of experiences. And at the same time, she was so humble. And when I did one month of meditation with her, I would spend my time actually uh, either sweeping the leaves with her or we would gather acorn together. And so she was always the first one to be working, to be doing something. But everybody used to talk about her. I said, oh yes, she had an amazing experiences. So she was known as a great practitioner. And so I uh, kind of uh, got her biography and I did a book. And she also had written some poem because generally if you're a Zen person, a Son person, you have to write poem. This is kind of part of the course. You have to write poem. So even her, uh, who had no background like that, of education or anything, she wrote wonderful poems. So I just wanted to read you two. Empty is the original mind of sentient creature. Unsubstantial is their being. Where could a Buddha be born? Following the way they rise to Buddhahood. Committing a crime, they fall into hell. What futile information. And then another one. 
Buddha cannot see Buddha, sees Buddha. I cannot see I, sees I. I saw the nature, awakened to the way. What rubbish. And then I just wanted to, to read a, a poem. So of course, uh, the master under which I trained, Master Kuzan, uh, was a great master. And then he was really reputed uh, to have had three awakenings. I mean, you might think one was enough, but he got three. And of course, uh, if you're a practitioner in Korea, and if you have an awakening, a breakthrough, then generally you write a poem. So this is. Uh, one of his breakthrough poems. The diverse forms in the universe are fundamentally empty. So what meaning would there be in pointing at space? A withered tree standing on a rock feels neither hot nor cold. In spring, flower blooms. In autumn, fruits are born. Voila. <laughs> <laughs> so are there any questions or comments? Yes. Oh, that's um, suddenly I have a, a big hole. Song Yong Sunim. Song Yong Sunim. Okay, so maybe. Yes? Okay, so um, I think uh, like in, in different tradition, uh, you will have different walking. And in some tradition, you'll have no walking. So some have, have it, some don't have it. In Burma, I would say they are the Olympian of slow walking. Like Burma, they really go like this. I mean, they really, you can do this retreat where you go slow but like slow more the whole time. It's quite amazing. So they do more slow walking, and there it's really the idea is you, you slow everything down, and then it becomes easier to concentrate. So that's generally the idea. Then when I was in Taiwan, uh, I was at a temple, a nunnery, uh, where there was a great uh, nun. And there, uh, what they did was that they would sit for an hour, so the length of an incense stick, so you sat for an hour without moving. And then you had two circles to walk, so, so the, the, you were seated around the wall of the hall. In the middle, you had the Buddha, 
and then you walked in the hall in the middle. And then there you had two circles. And one went very fast, and then one went fast. And for that, for 30 minutes. And my idea in seeing them doing it was that when they sat, they sat for an hour immobile, and then they use a walking fast as a way to really kind of energize the whole organism. And then you went back to sit for an hour. That's the feeling I had. If you go to Japan, again, because there the space I feel is a bit small, they seem to walk more slowly. So they start slow, then they go a little tiny bit faster, but not very fast. In Korea, they generally walk, I would say, at an ordinary pace or a good pace according to the space they have. And here, I think, is because um, they want you, this is one of their big things, they want you to have as much concentration in slowness as in speed. So they're basically very much into meditation in daily life, you could say. So there, because I mean, you see it for three months. And so there the idea is, you know, like the question, go to the bathroom, the question walks, the question work in the field. That the idea is that no matter what you do, you continue with the question. And so they really, they, they think more about speed in terms, not going too fast, but in terms of that not associating calm with practice, and I'll talk more about this tomorrow, why kind of they look at calm with a little suspicion. So then something which would more, more alert, that they would be more interested in something which again keeps them more alert. And personally, I think it's according to people's temperament. Sometimes to walk ordinary or fast is better for certain physiology, and walking slow might be better for others. Okay, so maybe now we can do some walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.